On today's episode, the Video Insiders sit down with an industry luminary who shares results of a Kodak implementation study while discussing notable streaming events that took place in 2018 and what's on the horizon for 2019. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss receiving the inside scoop on all this and more. The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, welcome, everyone. I am Mark Donegan, and I want to say how honored Dror and I are to have you with us. Before I introduce this very special guest and episode, I want to give a shout of thanks for all of the support that we're receiving. It's really been amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's been awesome. In the first 48 hours, we received uh, 180 downloads. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. I mean, the, the industry... It's not that large, so, um, and and I think um, it's it's really an, uh, an an amazing number that they're already listening to the show from the start. You know, before the word of mouth starts uh, coming out and and people spread the news and and, uh, and things like that. And uh, we really appreciate it. So if it's you that is listening, you know, thank you very much. You know, we really do aim um, for this to be an agenda-free zone. <laughs> I guess we can put it that way. And obviously this show is uh, sponsored by Beamer and we have a certain point of view on things, but um, you know, the point is we observed there wasn't a good place to find out what's going on in the industry and sort of get, um, you know, unbiased, or maybe it's better to say unfiltered information. Uh, so that's what we aim to do in every episode episode. In this one, um, we're going to do just that. We have someone uh, who you can definitely trust to know what's really happening in the streaming video space. And I know he has some uh, juicy insights to share with us. So without further ado, let's bring on Tim Siglin. Hey guys, uh, thank you for having me today. And I will definitely try to be either as unfiltered or unbiased as possible. Why don't you give us, you know, a, a highlight reel, so to speak, of what you've done in the industry and, you know, even more specifically, what are you working on today? Sure. So um, I have been in streaming now for a little over 20 years. In fact, um, when Eric Schumacher Rasmussen came on as the editor at, at streamingmedia.com, he, he said, you seem to be one of the few people who were there in the early days. And it, it's true. I actually had the honor of writing the 10 year anniversary of streaming media articles for the magazine and then did the 20 year last year. My background was motion picture production. And then I got into video conferencing. And as part of video conferencing, we were trying to figure out how to include hundreds of people in a video conference, but not need to necessarily have them have two-way feedback. So that's where streaming sort of caught my eye because ultimately for video conferencing, we maybe needed 10 subject matter experts who would talk back and forth in the other hundred. And you know, then it went to thousands and now hundreds of thousands can listen in and use something like chat or polling to you know provide feedback. So for me, the industry went from the early revolutionary days of, hey, let's change everything. Let's get rid of TV. Let's do broadcast across IP. That was the mantra in the early days. Now, of course, where we are is sort of, I would say, two thirds of the way there. And we can talk a little bit about that later. But the reality is that the old mediums 
are actually morphing to allow themselves to compete, which is good, to compete with over the top. And ultimately, what, what I think we'll find is, especially when we get to pure IP broadcast with ATSC 3.0 and some other, some other things for over the air, is that we will have more mediums to consume on rather than fewer mediums. I remember the early format wars, and of course, we're going to talk some in this episode about uh, uh, some of the newer codecs like HEVC. But ultimately, it seems like the industry goes through these cycles of player wars, format wars, browser wars, operating system wars, and we hit brief periods of, of sort of Pax Romana, which we've done with AVC or H.264 over the last probably eight years. And then somebody wants to stir the pot and figure out how to either do it better, less expensively, faster. And we go back into a cycle of trying to decide what the next big thing will be. In terms of what I'm working on now, because I've been in the industry for almost 21 years, I last year helped start a not-for-profit called Help Me Stream, which focuses on working with NGOs and emerging economies, trying to help them actually get into the uh, the streaming game to get their critical messages out. So that might be emerging economies like African economies, South America, and just the idea that we in the first world have streaming down cold, but there are a lot of messages that need to get out in emerging economies and emerging markets that they don't necessarily have the expertise to do. And so my work is to tie experts here with needs there and figure out which technologies and services would be the most appropriate and most cost. That's fascinating, Tim. Um, the other thing I'm working on here just briefly is we're getting ready for the streaming media uh, source book, the 2019 source book. So I'm having to step back for the next 15 days, take a really wide look at the industry and figure out what the state of affairs are. And That's wonderful. I think because this is, uh, you know, exactly the right point as one year ends and the other one uh, begins kind of uh, to summarize where we've been in 2018, what is the state of the industry and the fact that you're doing that for the uh, source book, I think ties in very nicely uh, with our desire to, to hear from you an overview of uh, what were the major milestones or advancements that were made in the streaming industry in, uh, in, in 2018, and then, you know, looking into next year. Obviously, the move to IP getting stronger and stronger. Uh, the third phase after analog and digital, now we have broadcast over IP. And it's interesting what you said about broadcasters not giving up the fight with the pure OTT content providers. They have uh, a huge business. They need to keep their subscribers uh, and lower the churn and keep people from cutting the cord, so to speak. They still, like like the, the telcos and the cable companies, still need to provide the infrastructure for internet, on top of which the over-the-top providers send their content, but they still need to have more offering and, and television and, and VOD content in order to, uh, to keep their uh, subscribers. And it's very interesting uh, to hear how they are doing it and how they are upgrading themselves to the uh, era of IP. And I think, Dror, you hit a really major point, which is we, the heavy lift, and I just finished an article on ATSC 3.0, um, where I talk about using 2019 to prepare for 2020. 
when that will go live in the U.S. The heavy lift was the analog to digital conversion. Slightly easier lift is the conversion from digital to IP, but it still requires significant um, infrastructure upgrade and even transmission equipment to be able to do it correctly for the over-the-air broadcasters and cable. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Um, and I think, uh, on, on the other hand, there is one big advantage to broadcast, even broadcast over the air. And that is the ability to actually broadcast, the ability to reach millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people over a single channel that everybody is receiving. Whereas, because of historic reasons and legacy reasons in IP, we are limited still when you broadcast to the end user to doing everything over unicast. Yep. And when you do this, it creates a tremendous load on your network. You need to manage your CDNs. And I think we've witnessed in 2018, on one hand, very large events being streamed to uh, a record audiences. But on the other hand, some of them uh, really failed. In terms of uh, the user experience, it wasn't what uh, they expected because of the high uh, volume of users and because more and more people have, um, have discovered um, the ability to stream things over IP to their televisions and, and mobile devices. So can you share with us some of the experience uh, that you have, some of the things that you're hearing about in terms of, you know, these big events where they had failures and what were the reasons for those failures? I want to reiterate the point you made um, on the OTA broadcast. It's almost as if you have read the advanced copy of my article, which I know you haven't, because <laughs> it's only, only gone to the editor. Information. I have to say here out loud, even though we are the video insiders. We are the video insiders. <laughs> that's right. Video but, insiders. But no but inside information no here. No inside information. I did not steal that copy. <laughs> well, and, and, and what I what I point out in that article drawer, it, I think, which will come out in January, shortly after CES, is basically this: we have done a good job in the streaming industry, the OTT space, of pushing the traditional mediums to upgrade themselves. And one of the things, as you say, with OTA, that ability to do essentially a multicast from a tower wirelessly is a really, really good thing because to get us to scale, and I think about things like the World Cup, the Olympics, and even the presidential funeral that, that's happened here in December, you know, there are large scale events that we in the OTT space just can't handle. If you're talking about having to build to capacity, and the irony is one good ATSC 3.0 tower could hit as many people as we could handle essentially globally um, with, with the unicast model. So you look at things like that, and then you look at things like EMBMS in the mobile world where there's that in attempt to do, you know, essentially a multicast. And it goes to points like the World Cup. I, I think one of the horror stories in the World Cup was in Australia. There was a, um, a mobile provider named Optus who won the rights to actually do half of the World Cup preliminary games. And in the first several days, they were so overwhelmed by the number of the number of users who wanted to watch um, and were watching, as you say, in a unicast model that they ended up having to go back to the company they had bid against who had the other half of the preliminaries and ask them to carry those on traditional uh, television. The CEO 
admitted that it was such a spectacular failure that it damaged the brand of the mobile provider. And instead of the name Optus being used, everybody was referring to it as Floptus. Oh and my God. <laughs> you, you don't want your brand you know, being known as the butt of jokes for an event that only happens once every four years that you have a number of devotees in your market. And heaven forbid it had been the World Cup for cricket, you know, there would have been riots in the street in Sydney and Melbourne. Thank goodness it was Australia with, with soccer as opposed to Australia with cricket. But it brings it brings home the point that we talk about scale, but it's really hard to get to scale in a unicast environment. The other other event, this one happened, I believe, in late 2017, was the the Mayweather fight that was a large pay-per-view event that was streamed. And it turned out the problem there wasn't as much the streams as it was the authentication servers were overwhelmed in the first uh, five minutes of the fight. And so it took down the ability with authentication gone, it took down the ability to actually watch the stream. So for us, it's not just about the video portion of it. It's actually about the total ecosystem and who you're delivering to, whether you're going to force caps into place because you know you can't go beyond a certain capacity, or whether you're going to have to partner up with traditional media like cable service providers or over-the-air broadcasters. Yeah, it's a it's it's a really good point, Tim. In the World Cup, the coverage that I saw was, it was more of, uh, I'd almost say, or use the phrase, dashed expectations. You know, consumers, they were able to watch it. In most cases, I think it played smoothly. And in other words, the, the video was there, but like HDR signaling didn't work or didn't work right. And so then it, you know, it looked odd on some televisions or in, in high frame rate, did high frame rate, didn't 20 work. frames a second instead of 60 frames. Yeah, a second. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and um, what's interesting to me is, is that what I see is the consumer is, you know, they're not, of course, walking around thinking as we are like frame rate and color space and, you know, resolution, you know, they are getting increasingly um, sensitive to where they can, they can look at video now and say, that's good video or that doesn't look right to me. And um, I know we were talking before we started recording about this latest Tom Cruise public service announcement, which is just super fascinating because it uh, to hear him say motion interpolation. Yeah. It, so maybe it, we should it, it, maybe we should yeah. tell the audience for those since it literally just came out, I think, uh, I think today even. But uh, yeah, you want to tell the audience what what, what Tom Cruise is uh, saying? So essentially, um, Tom Cruise was on the set of Top Gun as they're as they're shooting Top Gun. And he and another um, gentleman did a brief PSA for about a minute asking people to turn off motion interpolation on their televisions, which motion interpolation essentially takes a 24 frame per second and converts it to 30 frames per second by adding phantom frames in the middle. Because Mission Impossible Fallout is just being released for streaming, Cruz was concerned and obviously others were concerned that some of the scenes would not look nearly as good with motion interpolation turned on. I think, Mark, we ought to go to a PSA model asking for very particular things like how do you turn HDR on? How do you, you know, the, those types of things, because those get attention in a way that you and I or a video engineer can't get that attention. Yeah. How do you know if what you're getting is actually 4K or interpolated HD, for example? And especially in our part of the industry, because we will call something 
OTT 4K streaming. And that may mean that it fits in a 4K frame, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's that number of pixels being delivered. It can also mean that the top layer in your adaptive bitrate stream is 4K, but then if you don't have enough bandwidth, you're actually getting the HD layer or even lower. Exactly. Um, even though it is a 4K broadcast and it is 4K content. And sometimes you, know, you can be disappointed by that fact as well. So I have to tell, I, I have to give a very, very funny story directly related. So, and this happened probably, um, I don't know, maybe at least 18 months ago, maybe two years ago, I'm sitting on an airplane uh, next, next to this guy. And, you know, it's the usual uh, five minute get acquainted before we both turn on our computers. And uh, so anyway, this guy, you know, what do you do? And, and I generally just say, oh, I work for a video software company, you know, because how do you explain video <laughs> encoding, <laughs> you know, and most people just sort of stop at that. Don't really ask more, but this guy's like, Oh, really? He said, so I just bought a 4K TV and I love it. And he was raving about his new, he bought a, bought a Samsung TV. He was raving about it. And so, of course, he figured, you know, I'm a video guy, you know, I would appreciate that. So uh, I said, hey, I said, uh, so you must subscribe to Netflix, you know? He, oh, yes, yes, of course, he says. And uh, I said, so what do you what do you think of the Netflix quality? You know, it, it looks great, doesn't it? And he's sort of hem and hot. He's like, well, it really, I mean, yeah, yeah, it looks great, but I, it's not quite, I'm just not sure. And so then I said, I'm going to ask you two questions. First of all, are you subscribed to the 4K plan? You know, and he was. And then I said, how fast is your internet at home? And he's like, oh, I just have the minimum, you know, I don't know. He said, you know, I think it's the, the 20, you know, megabit package or whatever it was. I, I don't remember the numbers. And I said, you know, I said, there's this thing. And I gave him like a 30 second primer on adaptive bitrate. And I said, it is possible. I have no idea your situation that you might be watching the HD version. Mm. So anyways, like, huh, he said, that's interesting. So I connect with the guy on LinkedIn. Like three days later, I get this message. He says, I just upgraded my internet i now have 4k on my tv <laughs> it looks awesome now, on one hand the the whole situation was not surprising and yet how many thousands tens of thousands maybe even millions of people are in the exact same boat they've got this beautiful tv They've got, and you know, it could be because of, you know, they're running some low-end router in the house. It could be they truly have a low-end, I mean, it could be a lot of reasons why they're not getting the bandwidth. And and they're so excited about their 4K TV. They're paying Netflix to get the uh, top layer, you know, the best quality, and they're not even seeing it. It's such a pity. I had a TSA agent ask me that same question. Mark, when I came through customs and I'm like, sure, I'll stand here and, and answer that question for you. And the router was actually what I suggested that he upgrade because he said his yeah, router was and like, a lot of in a lot of homes. It's a router that's 15 years old now and it just isn't. <laughs> but it brings out the point that even as we're talking about newer codecs and better quality, even if we get a lower sweet spot in terms of 4K content or as we found in the, the survey that we worked on together that, you know, using HEVC for 1080p or 720p, if the routers, if the software in the chain is not updated, the delivery quality will suffer um, in a way that people 
who have turned on television and seen the consistent quality aren't certain what to do to fix when they use over the top. And I think this is a key for 2019 as we prepare for ATSC 3.0 on over the air broadcast where people will be able to see pristine 4K. It will actually force those of us in the OTT space to up our game to make sure that we're figuring out how to deliver across these multiple steps in a process that we don't even Mm. So you really see ATSC 3.0 as, as a game changer in 2019? What I see it as is the response from the broadcast industry to A, say that they're still relevant, which I think is a, a good political move. And B, it provides with the IP transmission, the scale you were talking about, Drawer. But C, I think what it does is it at least puts us in the OTT space on notice that there will be in certain first world countries, a really decent quality delivery free of charge with commercials over the air. And it takes me back to the early days of, of video compression when if you had a good class one engineer at an analog NTSC, you know, transmission system, they could give you really good quality if your TV was tuned correctly. But it only meant having to tune your TV. It didn't mean having to tune your router, having to tune your cable modem, having to tune your settings on your TV. And, and I think that's where the game changer may be, is that those tuner cards, which will send HDR signaling and things like that with the actual transmission, are going to make it much easier for the consumer to consume quality you know, in a free scenario. So I, I think that part of it's a potential game changer. That's interesting. You know, Tim, um, we worked together earlier this year on a, on a survey, an industry survey that um, I, I think it would be really, really interesting to the listeners to talk about. Shall we, shall we pivot into that? Maybe you can, you, you can share some of the findings there. Why don't you take the lead on why Beamer wanted to do that? And then I'll follow up with some of the points that we got out of it. So um, obviously we are a codec uh, developer and um, it's important for us to always, um, you know, be addressing the market the way that the market wants to be addressed, meaning that we're developing, you know, technologies and solutions and standards that are going to be adopted. So clearly there has been, you know, especially if we rewind um, a year ago or even 18 months ago, uh, AV1 was just recently launched. You know, there were still questions uh, about VP9. Obviously, H.264 AVC is, is the standard used everywhere. We felt, you know, let's go out to the industry. Let's let's really find out what the what the attitudes are, what the thinking is, you know, what's going on, quote unquote, behind closed doors and find out, you know, what are people doing? You know, are they are they building workflows for these new advanced codecs? How are they going to build those workflows? So that was the uh, impetus, if you will, for it. And, uh, you know, we were very happy, Tim, to work with you on that. And of course, streaming media uh, assisted us with promoting it. Yeah, that's, um, you know, that that was the reason we did it. And I know there were some findings that were pretty predictable, you know, shall we say no surprises, but there were some things that I think were maybe a little more surprising. So yeah, and maybe, I'll, um, I'll hit a couple highlights. Maybe you'd like to on share that. some of those. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. hit the highlights on that. Let me say too, that one of the things that I really liked about this particular survey, there was another survey that had gone on um, right around that time that essentially was 
are you going to adopt HEVC? And what we took the approach on with this survey was to say, okay, those of you who've already adopted HEVC, what are the lessons that we can learn from that? We didn't exclude those who were looking at AV1 or some of the other codecs, uh, even VP9, but we wanted to know those people who used HEVC, were they using it in pilot projects? Were they thinking about it? Were they using it in actual production? What we found in the survey is that um, AVC or H264 was still clearly dominant in the industry, um, but that the ramp up to HEVC was moving along much faster than at least I. And I believe, Mark, I told you um, when we started the survey question creation, which was about a year ago, and then launched it in early 2018, I expected we wouldn't see a whole lot of people using HEVC in production. I was pleasantly surprised to say that that I was wrong. In fact, I think you mentioned in our recent Streaming Media West interview that there was a statistic you gave about the number of households that could consume HEVC, and it was was it north of fifty percent? Yeah, yeah, it yeah, it's more than fifty percent. And what's interesting about that number is that that actually came from a very large MSO. Of course, they have a very good understanding of what devices are on their network, and um, they found that there was at least one device in, in at least fifty percent of their homes that could receive and decode, you know, playback HEVC. So that that's about as real world as you can get. And what was fascinating to me too in the study was we asked open-ended questions, which is what I've done in the research projects I've done for the last 25 years, both in video conferencing and streaming. And one of the questions we asked was, do you see HEVC as only a 4K solution or do you see it as an option for lower um, resolutions? And it turned out overwhelmingly, people said, we not only see it for 4K, we see it for high frame rate 1080p, standard frame rate 1080p with some HDR, and not a majority, but but a large number of, of respondents said they would even see it as a benefit at 720p space. What that tells me is because we had a large number of engineers, video engineers, and we also had you know, people in business development who answered these questions. What it tells me is that companies know as we scale because of the unicast problem that Dror pointed out at the beginning, that scaling with a codec that consumes more bandwidth is a good way to lose money. Kind of like the joke that the way a rich man can lose money really fast is to invest in an airline. If indeed you get scale with AVC, you could find yourself with a really large bill. So that look at HEVC as being um, not just for 4K HDR high frame rate in the future, but also for 1080p with some HDR and high frame rate tells me that that the codec itself um, or the promise of the codec itself was actually really good. What was even more fascinating to me was the number of companies that had AVC pipelines that were actually looking to integrate HEVC into those same production pipe. It was much easier from a process standpoint to integrate HEVC into an AVC pipeline. So in other words, H265 into H264 pipeline than it was to go out of house and look at something like AV1 or VP9 because the, um, the work that was done on HEVC 
builds on the benefits that were already in place in in AVC. And then, of course, you got Apple, who has HLS, HTTP live streaming, and a huge ecosystem in terms of iPhones, iPads, laptops, and desktops, supporting HEVC, not just as a standard for video delivery, but also with the HEIC or HEIF image format, now having all of their devices shoot images using HEVC instead of JPEG. So that in and of itself drives forward adoption of of HEVC. And and I think you told me since that survey came out, probably now seven months ago, you all have continued to see the model of all-in HEVC adoption. Yeah, this is what we we try to promote all the time. Um, You know, it's kind of a movement. Are you all-in HEVC or are you doing it, you know, just for 4K, just where you have to do it? Um, And and we really believe in all-in HEVC. And actually, uh, this week I had an interesting uh, discussion with one of our customers who is uh, using our optimization product for VOD content to reduce bitrate of H.264. And he said, I, I want to have a product I want to have a solution for reducing bitrate on our live channels. Mm. So I asked him, uh, okay, so um, why don't you just uh, switch your codec to HEVC? And he said, uh, no, I can't do that. I said, why not? He said, you know, compatibility and things like that. So I asked, okay, what are you using? What, what are you delivering to? He said, we have our own uh, set-up boxes, IP set-up boxes, which we give uh, out uh, to our customers. Mm-hmm. Well, these are pretty new, so they support HEVC, so I'm okay there. Um, then we have an Apple TV app. Okay, Apple TV has a 4K version, so it supports HEVC. All of the latest uh, uh, Apple TV devices have HEVC. That's fine. Um, Then we have smartphone apps, smart TV apps Mm -hmm. for... Android TV and for the uh, LG uh, platform. Okay, obviously TV support 4K, so I'm okay there. We're de- delivering to mobile devices. All the high-end devices already support HEVC. So, you know, he was kind of making this estimate that around 50 to 60% of his viewers are using devices that are HEVC capable. Mm-hmm. So suddenly he's thinking, yeah, I, I can do that. You know, I can go all in HEVC. I will continue, of course, to support H.264 for all of the devices that don't support HEVC. Right. But if I can save 50% of the bandwidth to 50 or 60% of my customers, uh, that's a very big savings. What's interesting about this uh, conversation drawer is, you know, first of all, I, I, I'm pretty certain that um, the operator you're talking with is different than the operator that I shared found the exact same thing. Um, this is a consistent theme is that pretty much uh, in developed parts of the world, it really is true that 50% or more of the users can today receive HEVC. Uh, and this number is only growing. So it's not like it's static or, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's just growing. So next year, you know, I don't know if that number will be 60% or 70%, but it's going to be even bigger. What's fascinating is, is that, again, we said earlier that the, the consumer is is getting just more aware of quality mm. and they're getting more aware of when they're being underserved. And for operators who are sort of um, serving to lowest common denominator, which is to say, you know, AVC works across all my devices. And it's true. AVC works on all the high end devices equally well, but you're underserving a large and growing number of your users. And, you know, if your competitors are doing the same, then I guess you could say, um, well, there's, you know, who are they going to switch to? But there are some fast moving leaders in the space who are either 
planning or, you know, or they're, they're, they're shortly going to be offering better quality. They're going to be expend, extending HEVC into lower bit rates and or lower resolutions, that is, and therefore lower bit rates. And the consumers are going to begin to, to see like, well, wait a second, this service over here, you know, that my friend has or, you know, that, you know, we have a, another subscription in the household. How come the video looks better? And they just begin to migrate there. And so I think, you know, it's really important when we have these sorts of conversations to connect to this idea that don't underserve your consumer in an effort to be something to everybody. And I would add two two other quick things to that, Mark. One is we've always had this conversation in the industry about the three-legged stool of speed, quality, and bandwidth in terms of the encoding two of those two of those are part of the consumer equation which is quality and bandwidth and oftentimes we've had to make the decision between quality and bandwidth if the if the argument is ostensibly that hevc as it stands right now having had a couple years of optimization can get us to about let's say 40 percent let's not even say 50 percent um, for equivalent quality, it can get us to 40% bandwidth production. Why wouldn't you switch over to something like that? And then the second part, and I have to put a plug in for what Eric Schumacher Rasmussen and, and the streaming media team did at Streaming Media West by having Roger Pantos come and speak. Roger Pantos being, of course, the, the inventor of HLS. And I'm not a huge fan of HLS just because of the latency issues, but he pointed out in his presentation, his sort of tutorial around HLS, that you can put two different codecs in a manifest file. So there is absolutely no reason that an OTT provider could not provide both HEVC and AVC within the same manifest file and then allow the consumer device to choose. And when Drawer mentioned the um, the company who has the OTT boxes that they give away, they could easily set a flag in in those boxes to say, if you're presented with a manifest file that has AVC and HEVC, go with HEVC, you know, to lower the bandwidth overall. The beauty is it's a technical issue at this point, and it's a technical implementation issue, not a can we make it work, because we, we know that it works based around the HLS. Yeah, this is excellent. So, Tim, you know, let's let's wrap this up. This, uh, as I knew it would be, was just been an awesome conversation. And uh, thank you for sharing all your years of collective experience uh, to give some insight into what's happening in the industry. Let's uh, let's look at 2019. And um, I, I know, it, you know, we've kind of been talking a little bit about uh, you made references to ATSC 3.0. Some of our listeners will be going to CES and, you know, maybe there's some things that you think they should be looking at or, you know, keeping their eyes open for. So uh, what can you tell us about 2019? So, so here's what I think 2019 is bringing. Um, we have moved in the cloud computing space uh, and you all are, are part of this conversation at Beamer, we've moved from having cloud-based solutions that were not at parity with on-premise solutions to actually, in 2018, reaching parity between what you could do in an on-premise solution versus the cloud. Now, I think in 2019, what we're going to start seeing is a number of features in cloud-based services, whether it's machine learning, which you know the popular nomenclature is AI, but 
but I really like machine learning as a much better descriptor. Whether it's machine learning, whether it's real-time transcoding of live content, whether it's the ability to simultaneously spit out AVC and HEVC like we've been talking about here, that the cloud-based solutions will, will move well beyond parity with the on-premise solutions. There always will be needs for the on-premise parts from a security standpoint in certain industries, but I don't think that that will inhibit cloud-based in 2019. So if, if people are going to CES, one of the things to look at there, for instance, is a big leap in power consumption savings for mobile devices. And I'm not necessarily talking about smartphones because the research I've done says, you know, the moment you turn GPS on, you lose 25% of the battery. Tablets have the potential to make a resurgence um, in a number of areas for consumers. And I think we'll see, see some advances in, in battery. And part of that goes to HEVC, which, as we know, is a much harder codec to decode. Um, I, think, I think the consumer companies are being forced into thinking about power consumption as HEVC becomes more mainstream. So that's something I think, I think people should pay attention to as well. And then finally, HDR and surround sound solutions, especially object placement like Dolby Atmos and some of these others, will become much more mainstream as a way to sell flat panels and surround sound systems. We sort of languished in that space. 4K prices have dropped dramatically, you know, in the last two years, but and we're not yet ready for 8K. But, but I think we'll, we'll see a trend toward fixing some of the audio problems. And in the streaming space, to fix those audio problems, we need to be able to encode um, and encapsulate into, you know, sort of the standard surround sound models. So those are, those are three areas that I would suggest people pay attention. Well, thank you for joining us, Tim. It's really great to have you on. We'll definitely do this again. And we want to thank you, the listener, for supporting the Video Insiders. Until the next episode, happy encoding. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H.264 transcoding every month.